We are doing things a little different this morning. We're going to speak on worship, so I thought it'd be good for us to ring on me. Thought it'd be good for us to have the preaching of God's word first, and then to uh, worship the Lord and some more songs. So, First Peter chapter two. During the 1760s, 1770s, right before the American Revolution, there was a lot of actually persecution of Christians in our country, or in the, at that time it was the colony. Many independent churches, many independent uh, uh, pastors, particularly many that were Baptists, were actually arrested, some beaten for preaching the gospel. One preacher's name was James Ireland. He was a school teacher in Virginia. And he came to know the Lord Jesus through a friend who told him the gospel. And when he got saved, he went on fire for Christ and studied at the tutelage of another pastor and then became ordained as a pastor and began preaching as a Baptist pastor. However, the authorities didn't like these unauthorized churches. They didn't like unauthorized pastors like this. And when I say the authorities, remember the Anglican church was the authority in places like Virginia, where he was from. So the, the authorities and the religious leaders of the churches were connected, and they therefore implemented their laws based upon what would benefit their church, their official church, the official Church of England. And so he was arrested because he was trying to lead a congregation. He was trying to preach the gospel to a congregation that was not sanctioned. And so they threw him in jail, and they tried to really destroy him and his life. And now picture the jails that they have back then. These are not wonderful buildings like we have today. These are dilapidated buildings that have bars on them. Usually someone could be in the jail. They could look out. They could speak to people. And honestly, that way people could deride them, could mock them inside. And these were usually infested with rats and with fleas and in fact, this particular jail had as its custodian a man who owned the local tavern. So people would get drunk, they'd throw him in the jail, and so it was kind of a good relationship he had, if you want to say it that way. He ran the tavern, he got people drunk, and then he'd throw him in the jail, and he ran the jail. So he got paid for both those. And so they actually, the authorities came to him, the officials in the Commonwealth there of Virginia, in the particular county he was in, came to him and they, to the jailer there, the one that was in charge of the jail, and asked him if he would kind of wrestle up a little bit of problem in the jail and beat this, this pastor up. So that happened on a number of occasions. That still didn't shut him up. In fact, he would go to the, the cell window and he would preach to his congregation. His congregation would gather out there. Some of that congregation was actually some slaves. Some, some of them are freed slaves and some African-Americans. And so they had Christians in their church there. He was trying to preach to, unsanctioned. Some of those people, they, they, the authorities carried away and beat them, but they tried to shut him up, and so what they did is try to kill him. First, they placed gunpowder in the jail, tried to blow up the part of the jail that he was in, this destroyed part of the jail. Didn't hurt him. Then they threw in some brimstone and Indian pepper and let it on fire and tried to burn it so that he would um, not be able to breathe in there and he would suffocate, and that didn't happen. Then they bribed a doctor to try to poison his medication, and it actually worked, but it didn't actually kill him. It just caused him to have some physical problems. And the point is they tried to shut up the church of Jesus Christ. Now, this was happening in, right before the American Revolution. And this is something that happens not just in history. It actually happens still today. That's around the world this is taking place. I think probably at some point in our history of our country, it will come back around to that if the Lord doesn't come back before then. I'm thankful people like James Madison who heard of the atrocities that took place to these pastors and these churches 
And he therefore was instrumental in putting into the Constitution the freedom of religion. He's the one, when we hear about separation of church and state, actually it's speaking about something that he had an idea on, and that is that the state should be separate from the church and that the state shouldn't try to um, repress religious freedom for people who are not a part of the official church. And so that the idea there of separation of church and state was actually the idea that, that churches should be able to exercise freedom in religion without the state stepping in and oppressing them and causing them to be regulated so that they're regulated out of business, if you want to say it that way, out of God's business. But the amazing thing about the church is this, is that the church doesn't need a building in order to worship God. doesn't need a place to worship God. The church is the, the temple of God. Jails don't hinder worship. There are people who are in parts of the world right now who are meeting out in the middle of a desert somewhere. I was down in Nicaragua once, and I went out there, and we drove in the middle of nowhere, and there's this tin building out there. And, and you go into this building, there's probably about 50, 60 people in there. It's like 110 degrees. It's hot. People are sweating to death. And they come in there to worship God. So the amazing reality of the church is that God's temple is not a physical building. People can meet as God's temple because we are the temple of God. And that, therefore, we can worship God anywhere. We don't have to have a physical temple or a physical building. Here we are outside. We're not meeting outside the church. We are the church. We are the church. And so we gather together as God's temple to worship the Lord. And so my topic today for the sermon is actually that we are to worship God in his temple, and that is the church. And so I have a series of the next three weeks from 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be speaking on God's house of worship. God's house of worship. And in our text today, verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2, we'll learn that God's, God, God is building a house. And it's not a physical house. It's a spiritual house. It's a spiritual temple made up of people. And God the Father is the master planner. Jesus is the cornerstone. He has laid the foundation the Holy Spirit energizes and holds it together. And we, as believers, we are the building blocks. And so when God brings his church together, we gather as his church and we form a special unity in Christ that, where we can worship him. So God's spiritual temple is made up of us right here. We are gathered as God's people and therefore God's presence is here with us because the Holy Spirit is within us. And God brings this church, or he builds this church, I should say. He builds this church for the purpose of worship. And so essentially what Peter is going to be speaking about today, even though he doesn't mention the word assembly or the word church, he's actually speaking of the church here. And in verse 4, we see this transition from Peter speaking as, of the church as a family. We're born into the kingdom. We're born into the family of God. We're, God the Father is our father. We're growing as a, as a baby, as an infant grows. So we transition from speaking of the church as a family to now the metaphor is the church as a temple where we gather to worship the Lord. In fact, look down in verse 5. You can see this, that we, we come together in verse 5 being built up into a spiritual house. In the Old Testament, when those two Greek words, house and built, are together, build and house together, actually refers most of the time to the temple. In fact, listen to this verse in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 5. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, 
would you build me a house? So he's referring there to the temple that David wanted to build, but then in the end, Solomon was the one who built it. And of course, the temple is not a place where God lives, per se. It's not, like, it's not like God is confined to a little building, right? That's not the idea of what the temple was back then. But God did choose to manifest himself in a very special way in a particular building, in that building, in a particular place, and that was the Holy of Holies. And the primary purpose of that special temple and that special place is this, is this is where Israel would come to worship God. And not just Israel, actually. Actually, all nations were invited to come. Remember, Jesus walked into the temple courtyard. What are they doing in the courtyard? They're selling uh, product. They're, they're making gain. They're, they're, they're uh, extorting people for money. And he says, listen, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. And what is Jesus saying? He's saying, this temple right here is made for me so people will come and they will worship me. In fact, one of the amazing things Jesus said about the temple is that he himself was and is the temple. He declared to the Jewish leaders there that he was the temple. In other words, he is the presence of God and people should worship him. Listen to what Jesus said in John 2, 19. Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And verse 21 says he was speaking of the temple of his body. In other words, he's saying, this is the temple. I am the temple of God because I am God. I am the presence of God. And that's an, that's an amazing thing to think about. Because people in the, Jewish time, in the Jewish people would have thought that, that was blasphemy. And at the end of the day, if you remember why Jesus was crucified, it was one of these accusations right here. And that is that he could tear down the temple and build it within three days. And they recognized that he was speaking blasphemy. In fact, what we find in Acts is that the teaching of Jesus and the apostle culminates in this idea that there's actually a new temple, and that temple is the church. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes, kind of reminiscent of the time when, when, uh, when Solomon built the temple and the Holy Spirit came and indwelt the temple, the Lord indwelt the temple. And here in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes, he indwells the church. And listen to what Paul, listen to Act, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Listen to how Paul describes the church as a temple. Ephesians 2, 19, the household of God, so here's God's house, Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone in whom the whole structure, this, this house being joined together, grows into a holy temple. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. And so this idea is, is that we are now the temple of God. God is building his temple, and that's the church. And what's the purpose of a temple? What's the purpose of God building his church? It's for the worship of God. And so what I believe this text is speaking about here this morning is it's speaking about the worship of, of God, particularly here the worship of Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at five different aspects of worship, New Testament worship. And it's not going to be as long as you're thinking right now. Some of you are like, man, five points, Pastor Ben? I don't know about this. Well, the main idea I want you to go home with today is that God is working in you and he's working in the church to equip us to be worshipers of Jesus Christ. So let's start by reading our text and then we will pray. First Peter chapter 2, look at verses 4 and 5. Would you stand? It's only two verses, but let's stand up and let's read these together. I'll read it out loud. You can 
follow along. Verse 4 says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is the reading of the scripture. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that we have the revelation of Jesus Christ found in the word of God. And so today I pray you'll sharpen our minds to, to clearly understand what does it look like to worship you. What does true worship look like? That's really the question that people have for all time. Who are you, God, and how can we worship you? And so I may, may we see that worship is in the context of true worship, in the context of Jesus Christ and following him by faith. We pray you'll bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you be seated? So our first point we have today is the first aspect of New Testament worship, the worship of Christ, is the one to be worshipped is the Lord. Who are we to worship? The one we are to worship is the Lord. And what's interesting, if you look at how verse 2 and 3 flow into verse 4, you can see that, that we are to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verses 2 and 3, and just, just a quick overview of it. Remember, we talked about how, how these verses talk about our relationship with the Lord. And so in verse 2, we talked about how one of the aspects of our relationship with the Lord is longing for the pure milk of the word. In verse 3, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. So we learn that our relationship with the Lord is enjoyed by means of the word of God. So God intends for us to have a close relationship with him. It's to be a relationship that's filled with joy. And how do we, how do we taste or how do we enjoy the Lord? Well, it's through the word of God. And so we, we meditate, we listen, we come as a church and we gather around the word of God and we exalt Christ. And, and I would just say this, even though this is not a part of my point here, true worship can't happen unless there's the word of God. The word of God is what guides us in our worship. So verse 3, he says, like, you, you've, you've ingested the word, you've tasted the word, you've enjoyed the Lord. And then in verse 4, he says, like he says, as you come to him. So what comes out of enjoying the Lord and the word of God is this life of worship. So we, we take in the word, we enjoy the Lord through the word, and then what comes out is a life of worship. And so you can see that there in the first couple of words. He says, as you come to him. The, the word coming to him is actually a present tense. So this is an, an ongoing thing that's happening in our life and we're coming to him. What does that mean to come to him? Well, it means to come into the presence of the Lord. In fact, the word come there is a word that speaks of someone coming into the presence of someone else. It's actually used a lot in the book of Hebrews and it speaks in Hebrews a lot about coming into the presence of God. It's actually usually translated drawing near. So listen to Ephesians 4.16. Let us... Then with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. Or here's another one, Hebrews 10, 22. Let us draw near with a true heart. So the idea is we're drawing near into the presence of God. So that's the picture he has here. And kind of the picture is you're coming into the presence of God, like a priest would come into the presence of God. We draw near into the presence of the Lord, which is actually an amazing, amazing truth to think about. 
I mean, if you're an Old Testament saint, God is distant in some sense from them. He's in Jerusalem. He's on Zion. He's in the temple. Only special people can go into his presence. In fact, only one particular person, the high priest, can actually enter into the presence of God once a year. And, but yet we as believers are able to enter into the presence of God. We can draw near to God. I mean, just think about how exciting it is when you meet someone that is important, or that at least that you consider to be important, right? I mean, if there's a famous person that was sitting here today or a celebrity that was sitting here today, you know, we would all, if you like that person, <laughs> that is, we would all be like, wow, we're in the presence of this person. So, you know, you just imagine if Donald Trump decided to come by and visit us. If you like Donald Trump, then you would be excited about that. Now, if you didn't, maybe you wouldn't be excited. But if it's someone like that, that was very important, that you really liked, it would, you would celebrate that being in their presence, right? And this is the idea here. It's like, we can draw near. So worship is the idea that we can go into the presence of God. What's interesting, if you look at verse 4, who is this him? We come into his presence. What's this, who's this him here in verse 4? Well, the him is also the person in verse 3 who is the Lord. And it's also the person in verse 4 who is the living stone rejected by men. So who is, the, who is in verse 3, who is the Lord there? Well, if you would go back, you don't need to do this, but if you go back to Psalm 34, 8, you would see that this is Yahweh God. In, in Psalm 34, 8, that's the name for God, Yahweh. And so we go into, we taste that the Lord is good. We taste that Yahweh God is good. Remember the, the word Yahweh, the name Yahweh was the name revealed to Moses as God himself. So Yahweh God. And what's interesting is Peter actually believes that this Yahweh God of, of Psalm chapter 34, verse 8, is actually Jesus. Because look in Psalm verse, verse 3, he say he relates into this one who is rejected by men. Well, who was the one rejected by, God, by men and accepted and chosen by God? It was Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is, the identif- is identified here as the one in whose presence we go into. So Peter believed that Jesus is the Yahweh, Lord of the Old Testament. So the, the object of our worship then is Yahweh, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And of course, we believe God is Trinity, right? We believe God is one, and there's three persons, and all three persons equally share power and majesty, and that therefore they equally share worship. So we should worship all three persons of the Trinity. God, he is the one, God the Father, I should say, is the one who has, has selected us and who has placed us within this church and given us the spiritual blessings. The Holy Spirit, he indwells us, he energizes us. But Jesus is the one exalted up by the Father to whom we are to worship in the church. And so we worship all three, if you want to say it that way. But Jesus has a special place within the church because he is the sacrifice for our sins. So Peter calls us here to, to draw near to God through the worship of Jesus Christ. So we come into his presence. And then the second point, second aspect of worship is the reference point for worship is the resurrected Lord. So the second aspect of New Testament worship is the reference point for worship is the resurrected Lord. And you're like, what does that even mean? Okay, look at verse four. It says, as you come to him, as you come to Jesus, a stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So Jesus is described here as this living stone. Now, when we think of stones, we don't think of them as alive, do we? In fact, we usually describe things that are cold or dead or inanimate as stone, like he's 
That's someone who is stone dead or he's stone faced. And the idea is that they're, they're inanimate or they're, they're not alive. But here, he is alive. Why is this stone here alive? Because Jesus is resurrected. And why does he use the word stone? I mean, that's kind of a weird thing to use, isn't it? Well, he's quoting here Psalm 118.22 that speaks of Jesus being the cornerstone. In fact, we'll see this. Look down in verses 6 and 7. We're going to look at this next week. But here, you, again, you see Jesus is the cornerstone in those two verses. And so what this verse 4 is teaching is that Jesus Christ is the messianic cornerstone promised in the Old Testament to come, promised to be rejected by the builders, the religious leaders, but to be celebrated by God, honored, chosen, and honored by the Lord. Now, if I were to ask you, what is a cornerstone, would you be able to describe that? It's not something that we typically in our society understand what that is. In their, in their society, they would have known. Cornerstone was a large stone that was really the first stone of construction. It was placed in such a way that all the other stones would be aligned to it. It was kind of the reference stone for the builders of where everything else should go. So the cornerstone determined the, the entire structure. So if we have a building right here, this was probably not built with a cornerstone because we have modern technology and we can do it that way. But if this was an ancient building, then at the beginning of the building would be at the corner would be this large stone. It had to be a perfect stone that was, that was square. And if not, the whole building would be messed up. So that cornerstone was the most important part of the building. It was the reference point for everything else. If you get that part wrong, the whole building falls apart. So the Bible uses the cornerstone to picture the truth that Jesus is the reference point for all things. No person can truly understand God, can understand truth, can understand anything about life unless they truly, or I should say anything about spiritual life, unless they understand that Jesus is the reference point for all that. In fact, we heard this when, when uh, we just heard Acts chapter 4, right? Peter gets up in Acts 4 after Jesus' resurrection, and he preaches, and he says, let it be known to you, he's speaking to the religious leaders, let it be known to you and to all people that Jesus, you crucified, he, God, raised up. And he says that the one, the stone that was rejected by you, and that's the religious leaders, the builder, has become the chief cornerstone. And then he says this, he clarifies, what does that mean that he's the cornerstone? There is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. In other words, there's no other person who can save you from your sins. A person can only truly have a, an acceptable relationship with God or can be forgiven of their sins if they repent and believe that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. And so Peter rebukes the religious leaders because they look to themselves, they look to other religious leaders, they look to religion, they look to other people's ideas for salvation. And he's saying, no, Jesus Christ actually must be the reference point for truth and for life. And if that's not the case, then everything else falls apart. Again, I don't know if we totally get the idea of a cornerstone. I say cornerstone, Jesus is the cornerstone. You'd be like, oh, that sounds like a good idea. But for them, they would have understood that, that this, is a, this is a picture that Jesus must be the supreme person in your life. He is God himself. So he's referenced as the Masonic, Messianic cornerstone. In fact, remember Matthew chapter 21, Jesus says, I'm the cornerstone. He says, a living stone rejected by men, the sight of God precious. And so look down verse verses 2 and 4. I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 4. And he says, he is the, the Bible says, he is the living stone 
the, the cornerstone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And the idea is God chose him to be the Messiah, and he lifted up and he honored him. And therefore, true worship of God can only truly take place when Jesus is in the exalted position that he should be. Only if you are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, only if you are aligned to Jesus Christ, can you truly have a life that is acceptable to God. In other words, you must be saved, must be born again. Many people try to worship God. They come to a service, maybe even like our service, or they go to another religious ceremony, they try to worship God. And you can try all you want to, but if you are aligning your beliefs and your life to yourself or to a religious leader or to some tradition, then it's all in vain. How many people come to churches, sing like our, our church, or maybe they put something in the offering, or maybe they, they just are here by their attendance, and they think that God, God shows me favor because I'm doing these things for God. In other words, they align their life to themselves, but they're not truly saved, and their hearts aren't living, their hearts are living in rebellion to the Lord. And I guess I would just say this this morning, God does not care about your money. He doesn't care about your presence here. He doesn't care about your voice being lifted up if your heart is far from him. If your heart is far from God, whatever you do doesn't draw you near to God. And so your heart and your life must be lined up in faith to Jesus Christ. And so the third aspect of New Testament worship is the habitation of worship are God's people. The habitation, the dwelling place, the habitation of worship are, or is, I should say it that way, probably better grammar, habitation of worship is God's people. God is building a house to dwell in for, for his glory. What is this house? Again, many times we think of a, a building like this, but but here in this text, we find out this house is actually made up of people. Verse 5 gives this picture of this master builder who's selecting stones for a, a house to dwell in. And, and this picture would have completely made sense to them back then because their homes, most of their homes are made out of stone. In our society today, we make homes out of what? Bricks or wood or, I don't know, sometimes poured cement, things like that. But back then, I mean, there was rocks everywhere. You know, so if you're going to look at building a house, what are you going to do? You're going to like, what's the resources we have around us? Frankly, over in Israel, there's not many trees. And if there are, they're very valuable. Wood is very valuable over there. And so they would take stones and they would use them to build their house. So first they would put a cornerstone down. And then that would, that would be the reference point for all the other stones. And you'd place the stones. Well, first what you do is you pick the stones. Then you shape the stones. And then you place the stones to fit perfectly. And if you actually had a well-constructed house, this house actually would be a solid house for you to live in, to dwell in. That's the whole purpose of a house, is to dwell in. So here we see a description of the house, the spiritual house that God is building. building. First of all, notice it's built with living people. He says, you are the stones, you're living stones, you're, you're souls who have been resurrected by Jesus Christ. And so you're, you're living stones. And then second, he describes this house as built by God. Look at verse number five. He says, being built. It's a present tense. It's ongoing. It's divine passive. It's something God is doing to you. So, so God is doing this within our church. He's doing this with people in the world. He's building his house with people. He's selecting people. 
and he's shaping them to be what he wants them to be so they fit well within the temple of God. In other words, they fit well within the church of Jesus Christ. I, I read a story that was really, uh, it was made up, but it was a really interesting one. I thought it illustrated this well. This guy told the story. He says, in ancient times, there was a man that was walking down the road. He was passing by a building that was being constructed, and he looked at this large building, and of course, it was made out of stone, and so there were masons at the very bottom, and they were taking stones, and they were, they were fashioning them for the building. And so he walked by this, this building, but it looked like it was almost completed. And so he was trying to figure out when one mason was, one mason was working on a stone, he was trying to figure out where, where would this go up there. So he looked at this mason, and he was looking around like, where's this one going to go? And so he asked the mason, he's like, where, where does this one go up there? And the mason's like, well, it's going to go on the top up there. And he, so he looked, and he tried to find it, and he says, well, why are you working on it down here? Like, why don't you go up there and chisel it and fit it perfectly up there, you know, so it fits up there. And he's like, well, my tools are down here, and it's honestly easier to get it better precision down here. And he goes, I, I have to work on it down here so that it fits up there. And kind of the point of that illustration is that that's, that's what God is doing. God is working on us down here. He's shaping us as, as living stones so we can fit, if you want to say, for his temple up there. And I love the imagery here of God shaping us and God fashioning us. In fact, one of the interesting things is just about um, Jesus Christ and his job here on earth is we know him as a carpenter, right? That Jesus was a carpenter. But actually that word just means builder. It means that Jesus built things. And many times we think about carpentry as, as wood, you know. And it, he probably did work with some wood, but he likely also would have worked with stone because what did, what did people build with back then? Stone, right? So Jesus probably worked in some, some form, some masonry, forming stone. So just think of the imagery of that. Here, here Jesus was on earth when the first 30 years of his life, there was part of his life where he was building things. And now Jesus in heaven is building his church to be a holy temple where his presence can dwell and people can worship him. So God is crafting each one of us. And just think of the, the difficulties that are in our life. Sometimes the, the problems come in our life and God puts them there to, to shape us what he wants us to be. And what does he want us to be? He wants us to be a worshiper of Christ. So he, he puts things in our life and shapes us in such a way that we fit well within his plan for us. And sometimes we can look at a passage like this and we think very individualistic, right? I, I'm a stone. But notice how it's a stone that fits with other stones. In other words, we're not just by ourselves here. It's actually a unity of stones together. In fact, you're looking at in verse 5. It's a plural. The you is plural there. So he's speaking of a group or an assembly of Christians that are being built into this spiritual house. So it's not just, don't just think of yourself on your own, but God actually is placing you within God's people here to, to make this habitation for the Lord to dwell for us to worship him. And spiritual there, spiritual house doesn't just mean, um, doesn't just, it's just not just the opposite of physical, although it is that. In other words, it's not that God is building a physical building, it's spiritual, but also has the idea that the Holy Spirit is the one who indwells and, and energizes the house of worship. And I guess I, I say that for us to think about the fact that part of God's house of worship, the temple of God, is that the Spirit of God is indwelling us and energizing us to worship Him. So real worship within our church isn't just something that we can try to gin up. You know, it's not something where Josh is going to be able to get up here and be like, okay, is everyone, everyone excited? Did everyone drink their coffee today? 
You know, do you everyone get a five-hour energy so you can really worship Jesus this morning? Like, if the Holy Spirit is within you and the truth of God is real to you, then what will come out of you is true worship to the Lord. Like, the habitation of God is 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 filled with the Holy Spirit, with people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so this is what energizes the work, the habitation of the Lord. So the habitation of worship is God's people. We are the house of God being built up. And then second, fourthly, the ones who are to worship. This is my shortest point if you're getting worried. The fourth aspect of New Testament worship, the ones who worship are holy priests. So the ones in the church who are to worship are actually holy priests before the Lord. At the time of the Old Testament temple, there were only a few people that could actually enter into the temple. There's only one who could actually enter into the Holy of Holies. Though those who were a part of temple worship were priests who were men. So women, you're out of it. And then you got to be a Levitical man. you got to be from the Levitical line. But here in verse 5, here's the amazing thing about verse 5. Man, woman, all people who are in Christ are actually priests in God's temple. God is building his church, his, if you could say his temple, for the purpose of you exercising your ability to be a holy priest before God. Look at verse 5. He says that we are being built up as a spiritual house to be, or you could say this way, for the purpose of a holy priesthood. Many religions, many uh, traditions have priests in them. If you go to some tribal areas where there's more of animism and spiritism, you can usually find some kind of witch doctor there. And the idea of a priest is someone who's a go-between, between you and God. Okay? And so I, I see a little bug flying around there. You guys can just ignore it. That doesn't bite at all. Right? You can bite it, though, if you want. And the idea of a priest is to go between, between you and God. So like many times the witch doctor, you go to him and you try to uh, appease the, the spirit gods by him doing certain things. Uh, there's many Eastern religions have priests who function in temples and, and they, they burn incense and they're kind of the go between, between the normal people and God. And even in a modern society, we have places like the Catholic church who have priests. Many people in those kind of traditions would consider me to be a priest. And the idea is that that person's a go-between between you and God. But actually, that idea is unbiblical. It's actually anti-gospel. I am a priest, but so are you. In fact, all of us, though are believers in Christ, we're all priests. And so the, the idea of the Catholic Church and many other people who have this idea that you need to have someone who's a go-between between you and God is, is actually uh, wrong. And actually, it's anti-Christ, if you could say it that way, because actually the only person that goes between us and God is who? Jesus Christ, he is the mediator. He's the high priest, and we are the priest. And we can actually, as priests, directly enter into the presence of God. If you're a believer in Christ, you can go to the throne of the Lord yourself. You don't need a pastor to come pray with you, although I'm willing to pray with you. But you don't need me to pray for you in that way. You can pray directly to God through Christ. As a worshiper of Christ, you, you should view yourself, I think you should view yourself as a priest of God. You are, as a priest, set aside to be a holy priest before the Lord. So therefore, we, we must live that way. We, we live our lives as priests before God, entering into his presence on a daily basis, set aside as holy, directly relating and fellowshipping to God like a priest should. 
in a moment we're going to sing songs. And one of the reasons I wanted to do at the very end is, is to have some of these truths on our mind as we go into this. But when we sing, I think we even should sing with this idea that we are like these priests that go into the temple of God and we offer sacrifices. And one of those is the sacrifice of praise to God. So we live our life as priests before the Lord, sacrificing spiritually, sacrificing to the Lord. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. In fact, we'll talk about it right now. Last aspect of worship is the activity of worship. The activity of worship. The activity of worship are offerings of spiritual sacrifices. So the activity of our worship are offerings of spiritual sacrifices. Look at verse 5. He says, we are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. And then the end there, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What does a priest do? Typically, a priest offers sacrifices to God. I think this description here is what Peter wants us to have in our mind. Think about the Old Testament priest. Think about how they offered sacrifice to the Lord. But our sacrifices are a lot different. First of all, they offered physical sacrifices. We're generally offering physical, or we're offering spiritual sacrifices. We'll talk about what that means in just a second. But one of the main differences is this, is when those priests went to the temple they were seeking to atone for their own sins and the sins of Israel. Do we need to bring sacrifices to atone for our own sins? Do we? No, we don't need to do that. There was already a physical sacrifice that atoned for our sins. And what was that sacrifice? Or I should say, who was that sacrifice? Jesus Christ. Listen to Hebrews 7, 27. There is no need like those high priests to offer daily sacrifices for, for his own sins, for, I should say, for his own sins and then for other people. So that's what those priests and high priests did. And here's the reason why. Since he, that is Jesus Christ, did this once for all when he offered up himself, who when Jesus died on the cross and suffered under the penalty, uh, under the wrath of God for our sin, he died once for all as the atoning sacrifice. So there's no need to offer any sacrifices to God to hope to atone for our sins. In other words, we shouldn't come to a service like this and think, man, if I put this much money in the offering, will God like me now? Or if I, if I do this, will I be forgiven of my sins? Well, that's completely unbiblical because we come to Jesus in faith and we say, I could do nothing to atone for my sins. Jesus is the only one who lived a perfect life. He's the only one who died for my sins. And he's the only one who can truly forgive me. So what are our sacrifices like? Well, our sacrifices are not sacrifices that atone to try to gain God's favor. Look at the end of verse 7. I'm sorry, the end of verse 5. We offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. So our sacrifices are already acceptable. How is that possible? Through Jesus Christ. So, so the idea here is we offer sacrifices. And what's our sacrifice? Really, it's sacrifice of praise. It's sacrifices that come to God with thanksgiving and submission. It's saying, God, you have given me this, and therefore I give it back to you. Not because I want something back for myself, but because you deserve this. Because you have done this for me, and therefore I want to say thank you for this. And so let me just give you a phrase to help you understand what a sacrifice is in our New Testament setting. A spiritual sacrifice is something God has given to you that you value, and you therefore surrender it back to him in thanksgiving. So what is a spiritual sacrifice? It's something that God has given to you that you value, and you therefore surrender it back to him in thanksgiving. 
giving. So think about this. What has God given to you that is of value? What is maybe the most important thing God has given you that is of value? He's given you your life, right? He's given you your life. And so, so he's saved you. He's redeemed you. He's made you his own child. He's given you life and breath, spiritual life, physical life. What should you do with that life? Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God. Think about what God has done for you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So there's this idea that every day we come to the Lord and we say, my life is not my own. I give it to you. I surrender it to you. You've given me life, and now I give it back to you as a sacrifice. So there's this idea that every day you should be sacrificing, if you want to say, your life for Jesus Christ. And sometimes we think of sacrifice as, oh, I'm just giving up so much. That's probably not how you should think about it. You probably should think about it. God has given me so much, and he deserves this back because he is such an amazing, kind God. There's a few times where Paul describes his own life as a sacrifice. Listen to this, Philippians 2.17. He says, I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Kind of the picture Paul was pointing here is he's saying, I'm serving you, I'm loving you, and I'm pouring my life out. Why am I doing this? It's a sacrifice to God. It's saying, God, you've given me life. What should I do with it? I'm just going to give it back to you. So his love for people was, in a sense, a, 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 a drink offering, a drink sacrifice. It poured out upon the altar of life for, for Christ, which kind of fly, flies in the face of what a lot of Americans think about their life, especially a lot of Christian Americans. And kind of the idea of Christian Amer- American Christianity is that, you know, Jesus saves me so I can live however I want to or I'll just do this much for Jesus, and then that, as long as I can just do this much, then I'm, I'm okay. Like, I got my ticket in heaven, and I can have my life on this earth, comfortable life on this earth. But that's not the idea that Paul had. Paul's idea was, my life is to be poured out as an offering for Jesus Christ. So he viewed his life and his ministry as, as that. What else has God given you? Think about that. What else has God given you? that you should sacrifice and worship. You say, God, here's something that's valuable and you gave it to me and therefore I give it back to you. Philippians 4, 18. See if you can listen to what we should give as a sacrifice in here. Paul says, I received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. What is the sacrifice in that verse? It's a gift he got. What was the gift that Paul got? It was financial money. It was some kind of resources that they gave to him. So the Philippian church gave him money. And by the way, the Philippian church was very, very poor. This is not this wealthy church that was like, oh, let's give like 5% to Paul. It was like, we don't have very much, but let's give what we can to help the ministry go forward. And so they sacrificed. And what were they, what were they, who were they sacrificing to? What was this fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God? So there's a sense when you give, like in that box or online or or just even, frankly, of your time to serve the Lord, you're actually sacrificing, kind of like a priest would sacrifice. And again, it's not for atoning for something. It's the idea of I'm sacrificing, saying, God, thank you so much for what you have given me, what you've done for me. And the last one I would say, and this is going to transition us into our last part of our service. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 says, Through him, that's Jesus, 
then let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And so what has God given to us in that verse right there that we are to give back to him? It's our lips. It's our mind, if you want to say, that comes out through our voices. Particularly, I think he's speaking of the fact that we're praising God through song. But it's the idea that God has given you a brain. He's given you words. What should you do with that? You should be speaking. You should be singing in such a way that honors God, that praises God, that that brings sacrifice. You want spiritual sacrifices to him through, through praise. And I think the whole point of this, we could keep going on and on with that, but the whole point of this is that That worship isn't confined to just this place, although this is a special place where we gather to worship Christ. And I think we should look at it as a unique, special place, like like the temple, in some sense, was set aside as holy for them to go worship. There's a sense where that is the case as as our church comes together. We are these living stones. We kind of come together and we form this mini temple here on earth for the presence of God to be manifested, for us to praise and worship him. But there's also this idea that we worship here in this setting, but we should be worshiping God on a daily basis. You might say like this, life is worship. Like when you turn the TV on, when you open up your phone, when you get up in the morning, when you live your life throughout the day, when you go to work and you go to bed, you are worshiping throughout your day. It's not just confined to Sunday. Life is worship. What you say is worship. What you think is worship. What you do is worship. God created you to worship him. So what does that what does that look like? Well, it looks like worshiping Jesus. He is the object of worship. He's the reference point for worship. The habitation of worship are God's people. We are to be holy priests living our lives for the worship of the Lord and the activity of worship are spiritual sacrifices. So I have really two things I'd like to end with and one is is have you come to Christ and used and come to him as the reference point for your life? If you've never come to Jesus Christ in faith, then your life, you can want to say that way, your life is on shaky ground because Jesus Christ must be the one we submit our life to. And then I just say to us as, as Christians, as Lighthouse Bible Church, do, do you view yourself as a priest before God when you sing, when you give, when you live your life? And are you living your life sacrificing, spiritually sacrificing to the Lord? My my goal in this text is for us to consider and to think about the work that God is doing in us. God is shaping, he's forming us to be worshipers of him. Are you worshiping Christ? Just a moment, we're going to sing. And I want you to think through, as we're singing these songs, remember, these are like, we're like priests that are coming to the Lord and we're making sacrifice to him. And again, I want to emphasize this, not to atone, not to gain favor. We already have that in Christ through the work of Jesus Christ, but in thanksgiving and praise to him. Let's pray. Father, I am so thankful that I and we as Lighthouse Bible Church get to be a part of your grand building project. You did not select us as spiritual stones because we had any value. That's for certain. Any value, I should say, in ourselves. There was nothing that we have done that gained any favor with you. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And it is only by your mercy and your kindness that you chose us. It's only by your mercy and your kindness that you're forming us 
to be the worshipers you want us to be. Thank you, God, for the blessings of, of Jesus Christ that have been poured out upon us, that we get to enjoy the presence of God. I'm actually talking to you directly. That should blow our minds and that the creator of the universe has, we have a direct connection through Christ to you. That's amazing. And even just even beyond that, that we are these holy priests before you set aside by you to worship you. And I pray that you'll change our thinking to think like that, to think of ourselves as holy priests to offer sacrifice of praise to you. So as we sing in a moment, I pray we'll sing with that on our minds. When we give or when we fellowship with one another, I pray we'll do that with that on our minds, that our lives are about exalting our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name.